Charles here. Welcome to episode 64 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. I mentioned in the season three finale that I wanted to extend the reach of the Big Rhetorical Podcast by featuring guests working in areas beyond rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. As I started producing season four, I contacted departments around the country looking for scholars working in other disciplines within English studies, and I met folks you've heard from in earlier episodes this season. I also reached out to nonprofits and community organizers whose work I thought scholars and regular listeners of the podcast might find engaging to amplify their projects and promote their visibility. And who knows, perhaps the potential for a collaboration or two is created along the way. One of the first people to get back to me was Zach Hyden from the Automotive Free Clinic. I don't believe that any adult human being should be able to sit in judgment of any other adult human being, no matter what their uh, credentials are. You'll hear more from Zach in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to a new CFP from Rhetoric, Politics, and Culture Journal, RPC, that caught my attention earlier this week. RPC is seeking short essays, 1,500 to 3,000 words, for Forum 2, Roll Call, Graduate Students, Activism, and the Third University. From the CFP, quote, We want to hear from grad students who've moved beyond white proprietary processes of graduate school, where they are positioned merely as new settlers in academic logics that mimic their program's existing theories and faculties. We are looking for work that especially illuminates positionality, as we do not all face the same risks with our activism and organizing. How do you define activism? in, for the field, as a graduate student, how do you define community organizing? The CFP continues, quote, how have you held on to refusal, abolition, decolonization, and or fugitivity in your work and time on campus? What programs, organizations, collectives, and or pedagogies have sustained your critical work And how have these spaces expanded the possibilities and definitions for what constitutes activism and organizing? How do we unsettle graduate education? What might that look like and do? Submissions for Forum 2 are due on April 15th, 2021. Visit the RPC page on msupress.org for more details. I like the idea of cultural relativism, which coming from my background as a growing up in the Church of Christ, where there were clear rights and wrongs and there were evil people and good people and most people were evil. Cultural relativism seemed like something else, which was, you know, maybe we shouldn't judge people. Maybe we should try to understand where they're coming from. Maybe we should try to figure out why they believe the things that they believe and maybe you know maybe in fact most people are pretty good and uh maybe we just don't understand them 
That was Zach Hyden. Zach holds degrees from Auburn University and a PhD in Environmental Science, Policy, and Management from the University of California, Berkeley. His research interests include popular education, the American South, and just sustainability, among other subjects. And he has published on food justice and racial and socioeconomic disparity in the South. In 2019, Zach published his book, Memoirs of a Mad Redneck, with Guillotine Press. Furthermore, he holds an Automotive Service Excellence Certification in Brakes and runs the Automotive Free Clinic. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zach Hyden. So let's hear a little bit about you. Who are you? What's your title, your institution, and your role there? So I am Zach Hyden. Uh, I'm the executive director and shop foreman of the Automotive Free Clinic. Uh, I sort of run the business part and uh, fix the cars and do a lot of the public stuff, although we're trying to get people trained to do more public stuff so that can we can take a little bit of that off my plate. We have a magazine called uh, Populist Mechanics. It's a progressive, Southern progressive magazine. It's pretty eclectic and we put it out once a month and uh, we've had a couple of pretty cool articles in there. Uh, we also have the Federation of Automotive Free Clinics. We've started AFC Southeast Tennessee, um, which is independent of us. And then we started Automotive Free Clinic Birmingham, which is actually a part of our operation. Uh, We just got a shop in Birmingham. We're looking for a shop in Montgomery as we speak. Uh, And uh, we got an air compressor donated. We ran a campaign to raise money to buy about a $700 air compressor, 220 And uh, somebody saw the campaign and donated to us. And we also raised $600, $610 in that campaign. So that was a roaring success. And a lot of stuff we've done has really kind of hit, hit pretty good. Um, I would say of the, I've been doing this for 20 years and uh, of the stuff that I specifically have founded, which is three different organizations. This organization is the one that really has made the most sense to people and gotten the most traction. So that's a long answer to a short question, but uh, um, yeah, I'm basically, I mean, we have a lot of leaders in our organization and everybody has a different role that they play. We got about 15 people in the organization um, and probably dozens more that are peripheral to the organizations, automotive technicians that help me, community members who use us to get all their cars repaired, Um, uh, people that help us raise money, institutions like First Christian Church of Montgomery and Montgomery Pride United who have been, uh, you know, inescapably helpful to getting us off the ground. Um, so, you know, it probably, 
if we just counted, you know, how many actual people that are peripheral or formally organized within the organization, we're probably talking in the seventies or eighties. Um, awesome. but, but really the, 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 the one organization, the, the thing about the core team in the organization is that I want to keep it small. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I, the core team needs to be people that all share the same values all are sort of going in the same direction and believe in the same things and want to do similar type stuff. And that I want to keep that at 20 or less. I don't want it to be a big organization. I don't think you need, I don't think it's a numbers game. Um, I think that, um, and I'm just going crazy. (laughs) I think that it's a liberal reform fallacy to believe that it's a numbers game. Um, Talk to it or, you know, Fidel Castro has a quote that says he landed in uh, Cuba with 85 people and took over the country, and if he did it again, he'd do it with less. Yeah. So I don't think it's a numbers game. I think it's an institutional power game, which is sort of building your legitimacy within the community by serving the community. And, uh, you know, people will listen to what you have to say if you prove to them that you have their best interest in heart. Yeah. You know, we do have some things to say that we, you know, believe pretty fervently. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, it's just hot air if you're not actually doing stuff in the community for the community um, to show that, you know, you, you care. You yeah. Actually, and that the things that you believe are the things that you believe because you care. Yeah. And not just, you know, somebody working at an angle, which, you know, I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for 20 years and I say 90% of the people that I've come in involved with have been working some sort of angle Yeah, and we're not working an angle. So we're, we're trying to build power for the community and build a better world. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I, I appreciate the long answer. Actually, there's a lot to work with and a lot to go off of there specifically uh, the value you have for your community and serving your community. So you mentioned that you have some affiliates or you're building a coalition, really. You have some folks in Tennessee and Birmingham, but I wonder, Alabama, but I wonder, where did you grow up? I grew up in Alabama. Uh-huh. Um, I have lit, I lit, I, my first years were in Fairfield, which is a suburb of Birmingham, a working okay. class of Birmingham um moved out to rural areas around Birmingham a place called Pea Ridge which is about 10 miles outside of Montevallo it's really rural um Huntsville lived in Huntsville during my formative years from about 12 to about 23 uh went to Auburn for undergrad and uh went to Berkeley for grad school Came back to Birmingham for a decade and was a community organizer in Birmingham for that time. Wrote my dissertation, published some papers, did some other, you know, mostly useless shit. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then my my wife uh, got the job as executive director of Alabama Arise, which is the probably the most important Alabama-only progressive organization in the state of Alabama. And we moved to Montgomery and uh, I got out of organizing for about two years and I went back and worked in a shop. I worked at Reinhardt Toyota, which is a dealership here in Montgomery as an auto technician. And that was a a really uh, 
a time of reflection on my work in Birmingham, you know, the stuff I did for 10 years and uh, my feelings of anger and uh, disappointment with the way things went in Birmingham and with the, especially, especially with the leadership of Birmingham, but not just with the leadership of Birmingham, some of the other activists, you know, I, I think they were, like I said, uh, working an angle. So and this it, move to Montgomery is relatively new then, I guess. Yeah, it will be here three years. Okay. Uh, we'll be here three years in July. And two of those years I spent in a shop and I got back into organizing at during the pandemic. And, mm-hmm. you know, really what happened, you know, I when, when this COVID-19 stuff started happening, I was like, this is going to change everything. This is a, this is a major, major, major natural disaster. Um, and I also understood that our government and economic system didn't have the capability to respond to the crisis in an adequate way. And I knew that people on the ground would have to be the ones to respond to the crisis. So we got together and we started the Automotive Free Clinic, which is just, you know, fix people's cars so that they can get to work, they can get to the doctor, they can get to church, they can get to the places they need to go during this pandemic. Have you always been into automotive? Is that something? Yeah, yeah, I have two passions. My my first passion is teaching and my second passion is automotive technology. And uh, I was before I went to I didn't start college until I was 23, 24 years old. And uh, before I went to college, I was an auto mechanic from 17 to 24. And uh, so, I, you know, I actually put it all together. I got about nine years of experience uh, doing auto mechanic work. Mm. And, uh, I am ASC certified, automotive service excellence certified in brakes. I'm about to take the steering and suspension uh, test. So, I, you know, hopefully I'll pass it. I have two ASEs. And uh, yeah, I've always, I, you know, like I, I love teaching. I, I mean, I just, it, and it's just, it's just amazing to you do popular education right. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's so easy. It's so easy to teach. It's just simple if you do it right, but you got to do it right. And the biggest thing is, is a lot of teachers, they want to be in control of the classroom and really that's the wrong approach. The, pro- the the right approach is to let the classroom unfold in front of you and, uh, you know, ask a que- ask one question and then just watch what happens. And uh, that's really how I approach it. And uh, as I've, as I've unlearned pedagogically, um, you know, the banking method of education, which is what Frere called it, follow Frere called it, which right. is, that I'm a knowing subject and I'm imparting wisdom to the passive recipient, which is make the the deposit, (laughs) which is the way we're taught from kindergarten to postgraduate school. And it seems, you know, that seems because we're so experienced with it, that seems very natural. And as I've unlearned that popular education has gotten easier and easier and easier. Mm. And it's just, it's amazing to watch a, a classroom become a community or a group of people become a community just by, you know, sharing of experiences and ideas and, you know, thoughts and dreams and anxieties and, you know, everything. And to watch a classroom or a community or a group of people become a community is just like, it's the most magical thing ever. And you, 
when you do it, when you do it right, when you do the pedagogy right, and people have never experienced before, I've I've uh, I've had this happen on multiple occasions. They get to the end of the semester, or they they get to the end of six months, or whatever, whatever the time frame is for it, and they say, "I learned I learned more in this." than I learned in my entire undergraduate education. I learned more in this class. I had this happen to me multiple times. And I tell them, I'm like, it's not magic. I And they're like, it feels like magic. And I'm like, it's not magic. It's a pedagogy. It's a, a way of teaching and it works. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got, I basically got fired from UAB because I refused to give grades to my students because I don't believe that any adult human being should be able to sit in judgment of any other adult human being, no matter what their uh, credentials are. And uh, I refuse to give grades and they cancel my contract. So mm. that's all. So you, you mentioned dreams. Like, let's talk a little bit about dreams. Um, you were an auto mechanic. You decided yeah. to go and pursue education, higher education. So I yeah. wonder two prod, a multi-pronged question. Uh, what was your desire to, to, to go to get your bachelor's degree and what made you want to go and get to the highest level and pursue a degree at Berkeley? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's complicated. I think that, you know, one thing is you got to talk about my radicalization and where that started. And, uh, you know, that really started listening to Rage Against the Machine when I was probably 16, 17 years old, 1995, 96, 97 in that area. 1996, I saw Rage Against the Machine in concert. Um, I saw Rage Against the Machine in concert in Tennessee at Lollapalooza. And uh, I was just, I was blown away at the confidence and the assuredness in these ideas that were that didn't necessarily make sense to me, but they somehow hit home, um, and that something was wrong, um, and that's kind of where my radicalization started. And then in two thousand and one, after nine eleven, um, my mother took me to see Desmond Tutu speak in Birmingham, and it was sort of the same type of thing. With so Rage Against the Machine, Zach De La Rocha, and Desmond Tutu, it's sort of the same type of experience. Whereas, where you sort of see these people who are really believers in something that feels right, and I don't, I, I can't really put into words why it feels it felt right to me at that time, but it did. It felt right, and uh, you know, I I started college in two thousand two. And uh, you know, I got married, went down there, went down to Auburn. The marriage didn't work out. You know, I mean, it was sort of a kind of typical story. You know, I I, I guess I kind of got married because I didn't want to be lonely um, in a new place. You know, auto mechanic, 23, 24 years old with a bunch of kids, um, you know, not really being able to connect with people and fear and stuff like that. Kind of got married for the wrong reasons. But I went down there and I took an anthropology class my first semester I was there. And I was just like, yeah, this is it. I mean, this is this is this is what I want to do. I like the idea of cultural relativism, which coming from my background as a growing up in the Church of Christ, where there were clear rights and wrongs and there were evil people and good people and most people were evil. Um, cultural relativism seemed like 
something else, which was, you know, maybe we shouldn't judge people. Maybe we should try to understand where they're coming from. Maybe we should try to figure out why they believe the things that they believe. And maybe, you know, maybe in fact, most people are pretty good. <clears throat> and uh, maybe we just don't understand them. And I think cultural relativism, honestly, would be a really powerful tool if taught in the United States today, because we basically have two cultures in the United States that are ready to kill each other. And neither culture understands the other culture. And yeah. you know, if we had these tools of cultural relativism, you know, we might have a different perspective. The conservatives might have a different perspective on liberals and liberals might have a different perspective on conservatives. I, I'm neither. I'm a, I'm a, you know, anarcho-communist radical. Um, and I don't like liberalism and I don't like conservatism, but you know, if we're going to have a country that functions, we're going to have to, start trying to understand where people who we think our enemies are going to come from. So anyway, that's a kind of diver diversion, but 2006, I uh, got divorced. Um, January, 2006, I got divorced and uh, I was taking a class in rural sociology. I, I think it was called community organization. And uh, I, Connor Bailey sent out an email and said, if anybody wants to do research with me, come see me. So I went and saw him. And uh, first thing he said to me, he said, uh, you know, this is about fighting a man. And I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. He said, all right. And so um, he gave me some research, which was to study confined animal feed operations, hog, hog confined animal feed operations up in Sand Mountain, Alabama, which is a, a confined animal feed operation is a, is an intense um, agricultural production system, basically a factory, has a thousand head of, head of hog on, you know, a hundred acre farm, produces a lot of shit. I mean, <laughs> it's a lot of shit. One pig produces a lot of shit. A thousand pigs produces a whole lot of shit. And uh, there was a conflict over it getting into the water supply. I went, under, I went up there, I, I want to understand, you know, from what we all heard is that you know, private property is a big thing in Appalachia. You know, I live on my land and you can't tell me to do anything on my land that I, you know, I can do whatever I want to do. So I want to know, well, how are you rectifying telling them they can't do it, uh, industrial hog form, farming on their land? How are you rectifying that with your cultural beliefs that if you have private property, you can do whatever the hell you want to on your land? And uh, I went up there and I found that they had changed it. They were saying you could do whatever you want to as long as it doesn't harm your neighbor. Um, and even the political leader said that. Um, so whether it was changed or whether it was there already, it was different from how people understood Appalachia. We published that, we published that paper in 2009 and then the Klan threatened me over it. I did some stupid shit up there that got me in trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, dumb, dumb stuff. Yeah. But I, it was first time out, first time being in the field, and I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, I was I'm a, a kind of aggressive. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I got I got myself in trouble. And, uh, they, you know, they the two, two Connor and Auburn's defense, they backed me up, and we did, we did publish the paper. Um, and yeah. so that kind of got me into – a position to go to grad school 
and uh, I uh, I was going to choose between Clark University and Worcester, Mass, which has a really great theoretical geography department, probably one of the best in the nation, if not the best in the nation, and uh, Berkeley's Environmental Science Policy and Management Department, which was more practical. And uh, I didn't really know um, what to choose. I like theory, um, but I also wanted to be useful. And uh, so it was sort of, I had two mentors. One of them was Kelly Alley and one of them was Connor Bailey. And Kelly wanted me to go to Clark and do theory and Connor wanted me to go to Berkeley and be practical. So I chose Connor and I went to Berkeley. It wasn't the only reason I went. My brother was living out there at the time. I was unstable. Um, I, you know, everybody knew that about me, that I was unstable. And, uh, you know, I was worried about living in a different place. I'm fucking redneck auto mechanic from Alabama going to Berkeley. I mean, it's, there's, there's one person in that club. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, so I went to Berkeley and, uh, first, first, uh, first, uh, I, I, after the first semester, I, I was just feeling awful, just really bad, really bad. Mental health was suffering. It's just terrible. So I went to the Tang Center, which was the on-campus health department, and I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that was really the watershed moment in my life. Probably the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life was getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder because my, my life up to then had just been – I mean, up and down, up and down, up and down. He couldn't keep job, couldn't keep girlfriend. Uh, just total chaos. And uh, it's a miracle that I even got got to Berkeley. I mean, is no doubt in my mind that that's a miracle. And uh, so I got diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and so I got medication. And my life just my life went from doing this this number to doing this a steady climb, and just getting better and better and better medication taking better care of myself, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, and I decided when I was recovering, I spent eight months in Birmingham at my parents' house recovering from bipolar disorder and just trying to be like, well, what the fuck am I going to do the rest of my life, you know? And uh, I started volunteering at a community garden in West End in Birmingham. And I decided to change my research from, uh, from uh, Asheville, North Carolina to Birmingham. And uh, that's kind of, that's where it all started as far as the activism and all the stuff I did in Birmingham over from 2009, 2010 until about 2018. So it's a big chunk of my life. Met yeah. my wife, met my wife in Birmingham doing activism. Um, and uh, literally, while I was doing activism and research, I met my wife, and that's it. What have you learned? You mentioned reflection earlier, right? What have you learned through reflection about your time as an activist in Birmingham? You know, Birmingham is a tough city, man. It's a really tough city. Um, it the the leadership of the city sees the people as the enemy and uh if the people want something they do the opposite and if you're an organizer and you're trying to be a leader and you're trying to you know get stuff 
this type of culture infects everything. So what happens is, is all instead of all the activists and organizers working together, they're all, all like crabs in a barrel. And that barrel has been put there by the leadership of the city itself. And they're all fighting with each other, trying to get the top to be the thought leader. You know, we're the thought leader and, and get, get those few positions within the leadership structure of the city and, you know, make it, so to speak. And uh, now I was, I was an immature organizer. I'm not going to say everything that happened to me was somebody else's fault. I, I attacked people that I, that were my friends and I did things that didn't make sense and I hurt people and I made mistakes. And, you know, I, as, as somebody who's more mature, I'm 42 years old now and I've been doing this for 20 years, like I said, and, you know, I, you don't realize the type of influence you have sometimes when you're doing the work that you're doing and you make, you make irresponsible decisions, um, with your power. And, uh, you know, part of that for me was, you know, it's just my history. I'm a redneck auto mechanic from, you know, Birmingham, Alabama. And I always saw myself as just a regular guy. Like I'm just, I'm just some dude, you know, I don't, I don't know why people listen to me or anything like that. And it's taken me a, many, many years to realize that, you know, I, I, I'm not some regular guy. Yeah. Let's you talk know. about, yeah. Let's talk about that term redneck. You describe yourself as a mad redneck. What, what's that term mean to you? How do you like interpret it in your, in your life and use it? What does it mean to be a redneck? Uh, it means to be specifically and technically it means to be a white working class southerner. But if you look at the history, uh, the Battle of Blair Mountain, like the sort of technical apolitical version of it is that it's a white working class Southerner. But if you look at the Battle of Blair Mountain, which happened in 1920, it was the largest armed uprising in the United States outside of the Civil War. And it was the first aerial bombing by the U.S. government in the history. Of, it is first aerial bombing by any government in the history of the world. 10,000 miners rose up against the company and the Pinkertons. And they wore red neckerchiefs around their necks to symbolize solidarity. And it was a multiracial and diverse group of people. It wasn't just white people. It's become, come to mean white people, but they were all rednecks. And uh, so to me, redneck also means that you fight, that you fight for, for what's good and that you're a resistance fighter. And I would like for that definition to reemerge in the South and really all over the world. Um, to me, to me, redneck is a global identity. It's, it's not an American identity. And I think of the American South as really not even part of the United States. I think of it as uh, a part of the global South. And I think, you know, some of the stuff we've been doing, we've been doing these these deep South roundtables where we get people from all over the world talk about their experiences in their lives. And, uh, you know, you start to see, you know, what's going on in South Africa with mining and natural resource extraction and so on and so forth. It's not that different from what's going on in the American South. Um, and, you know, we're starting, to, we've kind of got together and we're starting to see that, Hey, we got a lot in common. So I think of the American South and rednecks as, you know, part of this global network of resistance fighters fighting against basically the empire. Um, 
and we're sort of in an interesting – the American South is sort of in, in an interesting position because we are inside the empire. Rednecks are inside the empire, and we do have a resistance tradition to empire that we need to reinvigorate. And so we're in this sort of interstitial space between the global South and the empire. We're inside the empire, but we're an internal colony of the empire. So it puts us in a really interesting position in terms of geopolitics. So, you know, I think, a, so I think a redneck in that way is like, hey, we're part of a global community of people who are fighting against empire. And I, admittedly, that's speculative, okay? That doesn't exist right now. That's not, that's not real right now, but it could be. And, um, you know, I think that's some of the work that we're trying to do is to try to push people to think about stuff this way. Hey, after what happened yesterday, I had conservatives calling me, man, this is how you take down capitalism, using those words, conservatives, using those words. This is how you take down capitalism. And uh, You're you know, talking about the GameStop trading, right? talking about the, the Redditors trolling GameStop and breaking hedge fund managers. And, you know, they're excited about it. And what do you think about it? Oh, I love it. It's just awesome, man. This is because it just—it's not that—it's not the nuts and bolts of it that is awesome. It's the what people see. People see that the market is not free. That as soon as the people figure out how to manipulate the market, the rules change. The rules change. The rules change, and that's the way everything is. As soon as the people get anything, the rules change. You change the rules on them. Any the people figure out the system, the rules change. So, for me, the people got to make their own system, and that's what we're trying to do with the with the automotive free clinic. We're trying to build our own networked institution that can generate money and that can that can uh, help fund a movement all across the South because we can't get funded from anybody. Don't, fund foundations won't touch us with a ten foot pole. So we're gonna have to we're gonna have to generate our own revenue. And that's one of the ideas behind the Automotive Free Clinic. You know, we got our labor is donation-based, and you can pay nothing for labor. You can pay all of it for labor. You can pay more. fact of the matter is most people pay 90% of the labor. It's pretty damn good. And uh, yeah. we're, we're talking about the ability to generate revenue that we could then fund other institutional processes, you know, stuff in Birmingham, stuff in Chattanooga, stuff throughout the South. And we're not dependent on foundations who can control our politics and control what we can do. We're actually doing it ourselves. And I don't believe in violence in any way. I'm a revolutionary. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm a revolutionary, but I don't believe in any kind of violence, no kind of violence whatsoever. I believe in beating them in the market and, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, it seems like this one, like, I don't know if it's really going to be once in a lifetime, but it feels like it uh, moment uh, with this GameStop controversy. It's kind of like directly related to some to a, a phrase that I know you like, and that's redefine work. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. So I wonder, <laughs> what does it mean to redefine work? Well, I would say that uh, getting a bunch of people together and tanking a hedge fund is work. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's fucking work right there, baby. That's real work. Um, no, you know, it's straight from Marx. It's straight from Marx. Is um, 
Marx said that within the capitalist system, this is what a lot of socialists miss. Within the capitalist system, only labor that is in industrial production produces value within the capitalist system. Okay. Remember, within the capitalist system. Okay. A lot of socialists take that as an axiom. The only labor that produces value is industrial production. They don't understand the within the capitalist system part. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to take that and redefine what labor is. What about taking care of kids? What about taking care of the home? Like the feminist definitions of what labor is. What about caring for elders? What about caring for your community? Like why is all this not defined as work too? So we're doing both. We're doing industrial production and we're caring for the community. It's not that industrial production should not be valuable. It's that all these other things should be valuable too. So the automotive free clinic said, well, let's, let's do it all. Let's do all the labor that, that you can do, which is to both the, the care labor that is not valued in the capitalist system and the productive labor that is valued in the capitalist system because it's all important and to control it ourselves and not be dictated to by capital about the conditions of our work, how we can work, how long we can work, when we can work, um, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Why is it important that we redefine work? That's the first question, right? What makes it important? And then the second part is what role does the American South play? Maybe take that in a theoretical way, right? In redefining work. Yeah, it's a good question. So the reason that um, you have to redefine work is because industrial, the value produced by industrial labor governs everything in capitalist societies. So the commodity itself um, governs the capitalist society. And if you think about that, that makes sense. Houses, we need houses. That's what's valuable. Cars, that's a commodity. That's what's valuable. Food, that's what's valuable. So we need to read. We're actually, we're not talking about redefining work. We're talking about redefining value. So we need to redefine what is valuable to society. 
and these things that are sort of called feminine type work that is not valued by society need to be valued as much as uh, industrial production or you know, whatever, that's an old theory that industrial production produces the only value in society. There's new theories about that, but for the sake of simplicity, let's redefine what society values. So if you had those redefined values, then those values will govern society. And if you have different values govern society, you have a different society. What about the South? Yeah. The South is a repository for cheap labor. That is the way the South is looked at by capital as workers. And um, we as Southerners have to learn that. We have to see ourselves in the global context and not as Republicans or Democrats or any of this other sort of American exceptionalist, jingoistic bullshit. Like we got to see that I work for Hyundai in Alabama. Hyundai is what Korean, like, or is it Japanese? It's Korean or Japanese? No, Kia is Korean. I think Hyundai is Japanese. Um, I work for Hyundai. This is a global company. My bosses live in Japan. You know, and we got to see ourselves and the construction of ourselves as being shaped by these global forces and how we are pigeonholed as the cheap labor, some of the cheapest labor in the world, contextually. Um, And also to see our brothers and sisters in Mexico and the Philippines and Southeast Asia and India, not as immigrants taking our jobs, but as people struggling against the same forces that we're struggling against. And really, if we're Southerners, if we're American Southerners and we want to struggle against these forces more effectively, we should be begging for open borders. We should be like, y'all working class people come here, we'll build a new society. We'll build houses, we'll fix people's cars, we'll grow food. I mean, a lot of the folks coming from, uh, from Honduras and Ecuador and Mexico, a lot of them are peasant farmers. They already have the skills. They know how to grow food. They're coming here because they can't get land and working for, you know, a dollar a day picking tomatoes or whatever. Well, what if we got with them and say, hey, we got some land. Like, we're rednecks. We're a little bit more wealthy than you. We got a couple of acres. Why don't we start growing some shit? And, you know, I do think it's as simple as that. It's just getting people together and start doing stuff together and see what happens. So, you know, I think the most important thing for me and for the American South in terms of being a force for change, not only of ourselves, but the entire empire, is to look at ourselves as members of a global community and not as this provincial jingoistic and American exceptionalist idea that we're, you know, Democrats or Republicans. So... I got I want to open this up a little bit. You know, I, I'm born and raised in Alabama, and the idea of trying to convince some of the people I know that are Southerners of the concept of globalization is it seems impossible. So, how are you going to do that? Serve the community. It's simple. Easy answer. Really simple. 
it really everybody's got all these strategies for convincing people of an ideology and marketing and so on and so on. It's all fucking bullshit. You serve the community. If you serve the community, people will see you serving the community. They will ask you why you're serving the community and you will have the opportunity to tell them. And you've already gained their trust because you've proven that you're not on, you're not working some fucking angle, that your values are not just some thing that you read in a book, but it's something that you practice on a day-to-day basis. People can see that. People can see if you practice what you preach. People, anybody can see that. It doesn't matter who you are. And that's why, that's why everybody hates politicians, because they're liars. <laughs> and they don't practice what they preach. They say one thing and they do another thing. And people respect integrity more than they respect um, whatever it is you say you believe. We got one of our biggest donations came from a Trump supporter. One of our biggest donations yeah. from Trump supporters. We have multiple Trump supporters giving us donations. Multiple conservatives giving us donations. Is it because they believe us? Or they agree with us? They believe us, but do they agree with us? Not necessarily. No. But they see the work that we're doing, and they understand that there's value in that work and that it helps people. And they support us because of what we do, not because of what we say. Now, there comes a time when we can have a conversation about why we do what we do. And there's a, we're not just, we're not, we don't believe in charity. Charity is oppressive. We believe in mutual aid. And there's, there's a time when you can explain that to people and they can be like, oh, I, I understand where you're coming from. It doesn't mean that they're going to agree with you, but they will understand where you're coming from. Whereas in this country, it's fucking reality TV politics, you know, like, it's like a, it's like, it's not even real. It's like watching college football. I mean, you ask people, <laughs> you got an Alabama shirt on. Let me ask you something. You got an Alabama shirt on. Okay. Why are you an Alabama fan? Because my dad was an Alabama fan. <laughs> I mean, people may laugh at that. Listeners may laugh at that answer, but that's the answer Zach expected. <laughs> yep. And that's the reason I'm an Auburn fan. That's the reason people believe in Republican and Democrat. It's the same reason. It has nothing to do with ideology or beliefs or values or any of that crap. Because the the honest truth is if you talk to conservatives and you ask them about their values, not their politics, but their values, they're like pretty close to communists. It's like take care of the community, take care of your family, serve the people. Like that's their values. They believe in that stuff. Go to church, be be participate in church and help the church out and do it. And that's the values of conservatives. Now, when you start getting in the realm of politics, it becomes all like transmogrified. But, you know, I don't think it's as far away as people think it is. Mm. All right. So I think that you said it was a simple answer. We know it's not right. But there is like, serve your community. I think that's really reflective of your education, right? And and your practice, right? It's a practical, practical answer. Um, So what kind of services does AFC offer? We offer basic auto repair and maintenance right now. So anything, any job that is two hours or less, we will do. Well, let me say most jobs that are two hours or less, we will do. And then we will do any kind of maintenance. We actually offer a discounted maintenance package that uh, 
is on a sliding scale based on income. And uh, but we're looking for a shop. We got a shop in Birmingham. We're we're doing AFC Birmingham on Sundays, basic stuff, you know, brakes, oil changes. I think we're doing a clutch master cylinder and slave cylinder this weekend, you know, basic repairs. But we're looking to get a shop um, as soon as possible. We have about two months worth of rent saved. And we have two people willing to donate another month's worth of rent. So we got basically four months worth of rent saved. And uh, so we're ready to get a shop. Now, once we get a shop, you're talking pretty close to full service auto repair. Um, and like I said, it's pay, it, the, the parts are sold at cost. So we get a commercial discount on parts, which is about 25%. And we sell them at cost. We don't mark them up the average shop will mark up a part about 45%. So the labor is pay what you can. Like, and like I also said, uh, most people pay about 90%. And what it comes out to is usually it's about half price. It's about half price. And the okay. reason we can do this is that we get donations. We get tax deductible donations. So the donations subsidize the repairs. And uh, yeah, it's really allowed us to serve the community. That's awesome. That, that's the thing that I'm so interested in and excited about is how AFC is, is practically addressing socioeconomic inequity in the community. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, in Montgomery County, 7.88% of the population don't have access to a vehicle. The transportation wow. system is abysmal. So people are dependent on cars, but people have cars. They don't have good cars. So our goal and our job is to keep those cars on the road. And one of the ways to do that is the maintenance package, which is really inexpensive, but it keeps our eyes on the vehicles. Once every six months, we're looking at it. And it's like, I changed the oil of a lady got a maintenance package from us. I changed the oil um, about six months ago. She comes in, it's got no oil in it. Hey, so does it have oil leak? No, it doesn't have an oil leak. So you tell the lady, hey, you got to keep the oil checked on this if you want this vehicle to last. Um, you got to check it once a week and put oil in it if it, if, it, if it doesn't have any. It's burning oil. It's an old car. It's going to do that. It's not a big deal. But if you want it to last, you're going to have to make sure that you keep oil in it. But see, if, if you're not doing that, the maintenance part, then you don't have eyes on it once every six months. You know, that's that's really what we want to do is we want to get the community in for full service automotive repair from main, you know, they talk about education from cradle to the grave. Well, that's what we want to do with cars. We want to do, we want to get the people in, get them, their cars looked at and keep these cars on the road, keep poor folks' cars on the road as much as possible because if you run it out of oil and it slings a rod, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, it's done, you know, and there's, there's, that has happened twice um, with people's old cars. And we, I'm not going to say there's nothing we can do about it because both of those people we got a, a donated car for. So, you know, there are ways that we can solve those problems too, but that's iffy. But the idea, the good, the, 
you know, what we really want to do is get people in our community and create a community of people who are looking at their cars and working on their cars and have a good knowledge of what their cars are doing and can make sure that those cars stay on the road for as long as possible. What's, what's your, uh, it might be personal, but what's your, what's your expected trajectory of, of AFC in the context of class struggle in America in the future? I believe that we could build an institution that could fund a network of institutions that could start to move out the capitalist bastards. Um, whether it be by taking over local city governments, whether it be by um, taking over land and property, um, or whether it be by just controlling the narrative, I do believe that in 30 years that the AFC could be $300 million organization that could be a socialist force in the United States. And we're doing it all legal. Um, we're not threatening anybody. We don't want to fight anybody. We don't, we're not, we don't even, we don't protest. We don't use guns. We don't march in the street, straight market. We're doing it straight, straight up in the market. And we believe that we can defeat the capitalists in the market because we believe that we have um, better ideas. Simple as that. We think the socialist ideas are better ideas than capitalist ideas. And we believe that we can beat them in a the market. So that's our strategy. And, um, you know, it's, it kind of sounds like a weird strategy that the socialists want to beat the capitalists in the market, but I don't have a problem with the market. The market has existed for probably hundreds of thousands of years. The problem with capitalism is the distinction between the owners and the workers that allows the owners to exploit the workers. Even Marx says that people confront each other as equals in the markets, which is also reflected in what Milton Friedman said about capitalism as freedom, which I would try to change to the market as freedom. There is a level of freedom in the market. Now, there's not freedom in production um, because it's all controlled through the legal apparatus of property by the owners of the means of production. But, you know, Mark said this. Mark said that... Uh, that people who meet in the market confront each other as equals. And if we could get a little capital ourselves flowing and it's controlled by the people, we could conceivably confront the capitalists in the market as equals. That's what I think. GameStop is up 13% since I asked you that question. <laughs> <laughs> so, what coalitional partners do you work with now and who do you want to work with in the future? Yeah, I, we work with Dynamite Hill Smithfield Community Land Trust in Birmingham. We work with uh, um, Sweet Alabama in Birmingham. We work with First Christians Church of Montgomery here in Montgomery and uh, Montgomery Pride United here in Montgomery. We're also looking at maybe, hopefully, working with Mercy House, which is does educational programs for unhoused people, looking at maybe teaching unhoused people how to work on cars, which I, I would really like that. Um, we also have some global partners, including the Global Working Group, 
which uh, looks at international development in new and creative ways and sort of tries to think about how to get out of the international development box. And I think that does apply here to Alabama too, even though maybe in some sort of, you know, uh, twisty ways. Um, we were on the World Social Forum this week on uh, Wednesday. The video is up on the Automotive Free Clinic's Facebook page. And um, yeah, that's it right now. Who would I want to work with? I, You know, I really, really like the city of Montgomery. I really like them. From my experience working in Birmingham and just being shut out of every single thing at every single turn and of them trying to destroy us, you know, everything that Montgomery has done so far has just been the exact opposite of Birmingham. Respond to emails. Yeah, let's do that. Honesty. Like, I asked, hey, can you get us a shop? No, we can't do that. But what we can do is we can put you in touch with a funder. And they did. And we got a grant. It's like this stuff would never happen in Birmingham. And I'm just, you know, I don't I don't think they're necessarily perfect or that, you know, I understand that they have to deal with capital as well. And, you know, I, I'm not I would never be like never deal with capital uh, because I know you got to get elected. You got to do I know the real politic of it. But really, just the responsiveness and the willingness to listen is just so much different than uh, than Birmingham. And it's so, it's just so refreshing. It feels like a weight has been lifted off of my back, you know? Um, that, that Just that they'll listen. Like, just that they'll be like, won't treat me like an enemy. And um, who else would I like to work with? I don't want to work with big nonprofits. Uh, they have too much power and they have too much money. And I feel like they would overwhelm our little organization. Um, let's see, working with uh, NASO, uh, North Alabama School for Organizers, which is High Thurman's organization. High Thurman was an original Young Patriot and the Automotive Free Clinic is modeled after the, the Young Patriots. And working with him, trying to get an AFC in Huntsville and we're working with uh, Bradley County Incarcerated Resolutions to start an AFC in Chattanooga, AFC Southeast Tennessee. Uh, working with Eastern Kentucky Mutual Aid, doing some work with Hometown Action here. Well, I don't know if we're doing work with Hometown Action, but my buddy, uh, my buddy Warren Tidwell works for Hometown Action and it, me and him sort of commiserate together. So, you know. I don't know if that counts as partnership, but it definitely could lead to something. Yeah, but yeah, I, I guess that's about it. Okay. You mentioned a Facebook page. Where else can folks uh, find a, more information about the Automotive Free Clinic, uh, social media, online, web presence, stuff like that? Automotivefreeclinic.org. The Facebook page is The Automotive Free Clinic. Um, there's also the Automotive Free Clinic Birmingham, so you could like either one of those. Uh, I'm not really taking new friends re friend requests right now, but if you want to follow me on social media, at Redneck Activist on Twitter, and uh, uh, I'm uh, the Mad Redneck on Instagram, and those are the two places where you could follow me. My Facebook page is kind of just for my friends and so on and so forth. It's where I cut up and act a fool a lot. So 
I try not to do too much public stuff on there. Also, you can look at Confessions of a Mad Redneck, which is my video blog. Um, I got 30 video, 30, 30 odd videos on there that you could peruse. And that's it. That's pretty much it. Okay. Awesome. What's, uh, what's on the plan? What's on the, what's the plan the rest of the afternoon? I guess you're going to have to, what are you expecting on fine bomb today? <laughs> Talking about the catastrophe at Tennessee. But, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go look at a coolant leak, um, of a lady whose car I've worked on before. So she's, she's pretty low income. So we're going to figure out what's wrong with it and figure out how we can, work out a deal is good for everybody awesome and, uh that's what i'm doing this afternoon and uh my my car had a flat so they're supposed to be putting a new tire on it and it's just it's one thing after another it's always like that i hear you man zach thank you so much for sharing more about yourself your work and the automotive free clinic thank you man conversation with Zach Hyden about his organization, the Automotive Free Clinic. Since we talked, the Automotive Free Clinic celebrated an anniversary and continues to plan for expansion. I really enjoyed our chat and I want to talk to other folks running nonprofits out there. If you know someone who might be interested in featuring their work on the Big Rhetorical Podcast, have them reach out. Now, before I go, I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. Make sure to get your nominations in by May 15th and donate to the cause if you can. You can find our GoFundMe pinned to our Twitter page at The Big Red. Don't forget about the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming up in August. You can find more information about the podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility across podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this episode of The Big Rhetorical Podcast is from DJ Lang, Analog by Nature, Texas Radio Fish, Hodge, and Springtime. Thank you.